Uh, you'll notice on there that the first thing we're doing with this is taking roll, because I'd like to know who all got to uh, be exposed to the information. So please do put your name on there immediately. And if you do have some contact information, a moment ago you did hear that if you're not getting an email, you don't want to put your email on there. And also, you'll hear in a moment that we're having some new communication things going on, and so we may be sending you things in the mail. And we've never really collected mailing addresses, because I never really intended to write anything in the mail, but uh, sometimes it, that helps, so you might want to put your mailing address if you don't think we have it. Okay, are we recording? That's good. Welcome to our community meeting. (laughs) First of all, we're going to start with some history. As you might have expected, if you knew anything about me, we're going to rehearse something of the story of how we got here, because we can't really tell where we are until we know how we got here. And I'll start by saying, when I was in seminary, I ignored all the classes on church planting. As a matter of fact, I was in a class where they started talking about it, and I thought, I never need to know anything about that, so I skipped those classes. And then when it became clear that God was leading me to leave Los Angeles to come to Raleigh and plant a church, I felt that archetypical dream, you know the one, where you show up for finals at the end of the quarter and you never attended class? (laughs) I thought that's what it was. So I thought... My gosh, now I'm going to plant a church and I have no idea how to do it. But fortunately, I ran into practically a college course on cassette. It's called the Church Planters Toolkit. And this is just a wonderful thing. And you can see it's been sitting up in the church since we painted the ceiling blue. And and it has everything you need to know about how to build your church planting team, how to develop a vision and a mission and a strategy, how to develop your worship ministry, how to develop all of your ministries and get them all up and running about evangelism and about outreach. It's got all the material on facility, on finances, and all the organizational things that you knew. And I listened intently because when I came here to plant a church, I wanted to do a good job. And then I started off to do all the stuff that was laid out for me in the Church Planters Toolkit. But I experienced divine resistance. Now, I've known times where I have been in the flow of the mind of God, and I know when I've been in the flow of the heart of God, working with and in resonance with and in rhythm with the the universal mind of God, the universal spirit of the universe. And I know times when I have been in the flow of that, and this was so decidedly not that. This was being in direct opposition. As clearly as I have been able to discern spirit, I knew that I was not to build the normal, good, church planter, toolkit kind of church. It was as if God was saying words to me, I don't want you to focus on the institutional part of church. I want you to let the organizational things go for a long, long time. So I did. Many of you have heard the story. I dropped my considerable proactive leadership skills and I picked up a new set of skills, the responsive skills. I've described them not unlike being an amoeba, an amoeba that sees the light and it says, ooh, light, 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 no, 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 ooh, oh, peace, 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 no, no peace, no peace, no peace. And it was just this sense of finding the peace of God, losing the peace of God. Now, I refined that very primal strategy a little bit, and we now call it listen and obey, listen and obey. (laughs) And as I did we began to clarify some things. There are, the words of God would be saying to me, some people that I want you to love and some people that I want you to care for. And these people seem to be misfits in other churches, good churches. And it's not that they're not spiritual, and it's not that they're not devout, and it's not that they're not competent. It's more that the organized church has become for them toxic. And they don't really thrive on the programs of church, and they don't really thrive on the ministries of church. They don't really thrive on the institutional components of church. In fact, it's the very absence of all those good things that churches do in the church planter's toolkit that has become for them life and peace and rest and the restoration of spirituality. So, For several years, we were the unorganized church. Some people visited, and when they found what we were doing, they found in that rest for their souls, and they found in it life for their spirits, and consequently, they stayed. Others visited and found it to be chaotic and disorganized, found that there was not very many spiffy things going on, 
And so they left. And over the years, it has become generally, generally clear who the stayers are, and I want to describe them to you. Perhaps I would be describing you. Who are these willing to be in a church where not much is going on people? The stayers at NRCC, the people who have found NRCC to be life-affirming and life-giving, have four characteristics that I want to describe. There are a few more, but I limited it to four today. First, they're deeply drawn to God, but burned out by performance. A theme that has resonated with us for these years over and over again has been being versus doing, being versus doing. Many have been burned by the exhaustion that so often accompanies religious performance. Now, it's hard to know when you've tipped into religious performance because you can be doing the same things and be finding life and vitality, and you can be doing those same things, and you can be burned out by religious performance. Some of them found that regular church attendance and Bible reading and praying and serving in ministries, as valuable as these things are, had become exhausting labors of duty and of obligation instead of joy and of peace. These that stayed were repelled by the cog in a system church work approach that was aiming to keep the institution afloat. But at the same time, these same people were hungry to make a difference on earth as it is in heaven. That would have been a deep appeal to them. So first, they were drawn to God, but burned out on performance. Second characteristic, tired of religious trappings and tired of narrow traditions. The, those who stayed found no life in conforming to some denominational practice or some denominational belief or some denominational doctrine. In their place, they found great value in becoming part of an organic community of people who were seeking the life of God together. Consequently, we became a very theologically diverse group. Stayers came from just about every denomination, every tradition, with the exception of Baptist, probably because there's so many good Baptist churches here in town. But this theological diversity appealed to something inside of us. We found that though we stumbled into it in our quest for life, there was something valuable in this great diverse experience because we began to savor the ways that many other traditions experienced God. So second, tired of the trappings and the narrow traditions of their religious experience. The third characteristic of stairs was that they became tolerant of one another. Denominational diversity has caused stayers to see things differently than they had once seen them. Whereas they had been once committed to the tradition from which they came, they began to see that God was bigger than that parochial approach that they had had to their faith. So consequently, we became tolerant of a very diverse experience of God. We had charismatics and Episcopalians in the same group, and there's not many places where that happens. Rules and hard boundaries were less life to our souls than authentic interior experience of God. And finding that authenticity, wherever it happened, from whatever, from whatever tradition it emerged, was value. And that started us down a slippery slope. Once you become tolerant of one another's theology, you become tolerant of one another's weaknesses and one another's failures. Sin, we determined along the way, it was just not that big a deal when viewed alongside the grace and forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. And if God is this gracious to us, we learned, then, you know, we really could afford to be that gracious to one another. This caused NRCC to become a very safe place, safe enough that many have said to me, you know, I've opened up here and talked about my life in dimensions that I never had in any other arena of my life. Many have become more honest and more transparent than they have ever been. Today, many of us talk openly about our weaknesses, talk openly about our failures and our sin, and for the most part, do so without an attendant shame. We found that God has used this environment to forge within us a connectedness 
And that very connectedness, that community that was so appealing, became the primary means by which the redemptive work of God that goes to work on our weaknesses, that goes to work on our failures, that goes to work on our sin was experienced. You saw the email that I forwarded you, if you've gotten it yet, uh, I sent it yesterday morning, forwarded Bobby's email about her experience of last Sunday when she teared up, and that became characteristic of the way that we have lived together. So we became a tolerant bunch. And then fourth... There was something about external authority and internal authority that has seemed to characterize the way that we live. Let me explain that this way. Most of us, many of us, grew up in churches with an authoritarian leader who told us how to believe, who told us what to think, who told us what to practice, and who told us the things that were right and good and virtuous. And for many of us, that was incredibly valuable. And for many of us, that was just an explosion of truth within us. But those who became stayers found that that stopped being helpful somewhere along the way, and that our spiritual growth and our spiritual well-being was actually not being furthered as it had been, but it was being hindered. In its place, the stayers at NRCC learned how to develop their own internal capacity to discern the voice of God, their own internal capacity to find what God would be saying at one moment and what time, and they found this to be very helpful. So consequently, we've had less emphasis on talking heads up front, giving the definitive view of life in faith, and more on stepping away from busyness, because as we become less busy, we become more alerted to the rhythms of the Spirit within us. We've revisited the historical practices of contemplation, Lectio Divina, if you'll remember. We've created space and time by having a relatively free calendar so that we could be in one another's lives, in one another's homes, walking around the lake with one another to develop these interdependent personal relationships and friendships in which we tend to hear that inner voice surface more frequently. Many who have stayed have shared that trait as well. So those four attributes have been shared by many who've stayed at NRCC. And now, for the last year and a half, you've been hearing me say to you that God has begun to nudge us to take a slightly different tack in this movement forward. If it were words, it would have been, there are other people that I love in this city and other people who can experience me by being part of this environment that you have stumbled upon together as you have listened and obeyed. There are others who would be stayers in a community like this, but who cannot find a spiritual community with which to share their journeys. But they could if you would invite them. As a matter of fact, I have assigned some of them to you, to NRCC. It is to you to go find them and to invite them into your tribe. And you will recall me telling you that at first I argued with that notion, thinking that couldn't be God. I avoided it for a while, and then I pretended it wasn't God. Because organization would be required of such a step, and organization had been for us the bad guy. With divine seal of approval, we had avoided it, because our experience had been that organization chews people up and spits them out. Organization values the institution over the individual. Organization doesn't look carefully and closely at the well-being of the human, but the well-being of the output. And we did not want, nor did we think it was the will of God, for us to become cogs in a machine that was the antithesis of organism and was promoting some agenda. So I pretended that God was not speaking to me, And very quickly, we grew from 120 people to 150 people. And that was quite telling because when we reached 150 people, we became an incredibly ineffective, unfruitful congregation because the numbers staggered us and the numbers caused us to have problems and caused us to do things and to experience things that were the antithesis to the wonderful stuff we had experienced previously. And so consequently... People begin to slip away, our fruitfulness begin to slip away, effectiveness begin to slip away. So that got my attention, and I said, okay, God, you want to talk? Let's talk. (laughs) 
And I gathered a group of people uh, from our church uh, together to pray and to ask God about our future. That was one year ago. And so we did. We gathered and we met through the summer of last year, culminating in a community meeting that we had last October. And I laid out for us a path that was born of this praying, thinking, planning, strategic planning team that would allow us to work together in a common direction for the next 20 years should God let us live that long. And hopefully that the work would go on in our children's and perhaps our grandchildren's generation. And so today I want to review that 20-year path and I want to share with you how it has evolved and become clarified over the last six to seven months as we have been praying and as we've started working and as we've run into obstacles and as we had to regroup, I want you to see how it has been reshaped. I want to share with you some of the progress that we've made and I want to share with you a few of the setbacks that we have faced. So, next slide. Now, before we look at this graphic in detail, I want to go back and I want to talk with you a little bit about the characteristics of stayers. Let's all go ahead and look for a moment. Oh, my, that's a fine graphic, Doug. Look at the way you kind of did that. Look at the lines. Oh, they're good lines, right? Got it all looked at? All right, now, back here. (laughs) Before we go into the graphic in detail, I want to talk about the characteristics of the stayers. Those things that I just listed you, those four attributes, many of you, because there are some rather special characteristics. They're not just random observations about NRCC. As a matter of fact, they're a list of some attributes that characterize people when they hit certain developmental stages in their lives, certain developmental stages in their faith, certain developmental stages in their understanding of culture, and in their values. Now, many of you, when you were in college along the way, you heard of this guy named Piaget. Now, what he did is he studied uh, human cognitive development, and he looks at how the human brain develops over time. So he'd study, here's what happens in children, here's babies, here's what happens in children, here's what happens in adolescents, here's what happens in adults. And these certain developmental stages can be categorized, and we can see what happens. Well, other scientists have studied how other dimensions of our humanity also develop through stages over time. There's a man named Kohlberg who studied moral development. And he said that what is right and wrong for a 7-year-old is very different from what is right and wrong for a 16-year-old. And we begin to see certain stages that are characteristic of these points of human growth. And there was a man named Fowler who studied the stages of faith development. And he said this is what happens as people move through their faith. They go through certain experiences. And it doesn't really matter whether they're Christian or Jewish or Buddhist. It really doesn't matter. These kinds of recognizable patterns happen as people develop in their faith. Another man named Beck we talked about recently talked about how culture develops over time. And there are certain recognizable stages that we move through. He used colors to describe each one of these stages in a spiral that is moving upward. And there's a man named Hall who wrote a book on values development. And what he said is, here's 125 human values. We've got them all listed right there. There they are. Now, as we go through life, each one of these stages of life development highlights different ones of these values. You notice how of these 125, in this stage, people emphasize these. In this stage, they emphasize these. In this stage, they emphasize these. And these are people who have looked at how human beings develop, and they've begun to see these patterns of the way God has created us and the things that happen as we grow. Just as our brains grow that that Piaget understood, so do these other dimensions of our humanity grow, and they understood this. And each one of these stage theories has a point where the people that they're describing begin to sound very much like those who stay at NRCC. Each one of these stage theories would say, when people get to this developmental stage in their faith, you know, they tend to talk like this, think like this, act like this. And I thought, oh, that sounds like the people who stay at NRCC. The way that people view Other people, the way that they view culture, the way that they view community, these things change over time. The values that become most important to them begin to shift and evolve and change over time. And the people at these stages sound a lot like NRCC folk. If you're interested, it's Fowler's moving from 4 to 5, it's Hall's 3A, it's Beck's moving from orange to green. But these people sound a lot, not just like people who stay at NRCC, but they sound a lot like other people who live in Raleigh 
that have no spiritual community of which they can be part. Because typically what happens when people reach these stages of development is that they leave the church. I've been on the phone and emailing back and forth to California a lot to a lot of the, they were kids, they're not kids anymore, who were in the college and young adults group when I was uh, pastoring there uh, in the 80s. And most of them have left the church. But they have not left Jesus, and they've not left their passion for God. But they cannot find a place where they can use their language and their values and their understandings in a way that is consistent with a community of people. It's not the church's fault, and it's not the people's fault. It's just a thing that happens when there is a mismatch between a group and a value set, a group and a developmental stage. But I believe God has called us at NRCC to embrace and to include I was reading a hymn as part of my devotions recently. There's a hymn that's about 200 years old, and it used a phrase that I just thought so valuable, to fold into your own heart, that we would fold into our own hearts other people who live in Raleigh for whom our community and our pursuit of Jesus Christ could be a match, people who are finding a match nowhere else. And for the next 20 years, if God lets me live that long, I want to lead NRCC to work together on this endeavor. So I want to give you a progress report. I want to walk through what we've been doing. And you have that piece of paper in front of you that you received. And when you hear me talk about an area and you think to yourself, hmm, I might want to contribute in that area, then I'd like you just to write down the name of that area down in that bottom section. If this is an area that uh, you might be interested in, we would be interested in talking to you and seeing if there's a match between you and this, explaining it. So the graphic shows you what this work looks like for the next 20 years. The SPT has planned our work, and now we have been working our plan. (laughs) And I want to talk to you about each one of these phases. You see in each one of these Roman numerals, here we've got a phase that we're going to go through. I'm going to talk about those four phases briefly as an overview first. Right now, we've been working on phase one, and as you can see, there's four boxes there, adult ministry, children and youth ministry, worship ministry, and our systems. I'll talk about these in a little bit more detail in a moment, and you see I've added one down here, global and local care, which has to do with what's historically called missions. I think there's better words for it than uh, than that, but it's reaching out to people and reaching out to those outside of us and just bringing care and well-being, concern for social justice, concern for the things of this earth. So... We've been working on these, and while we've been doing that, we've been learning a great deal. We've learned about how our core values come into play when we begin to work together. Remember, for the longest time, we haven't been doing any work. For the longest part, we've been working toward being spiritual friends. But now we're actually doing tasks together, and how does community and spirituality and influence fit into that? We've been learning a great deal about that. We're learning how to create an organization that does work together but does not chew people up. Glenn and Michelle have been helping us as consultants for requisite organization think through how do you maintain a sense of fairness and a sense of trust in an organization that is in the process of doing stuff and needing to organize itself. And we've been really making a lot of mistakes. You know, we bump into things, we do them wrong, we hurt people's feelings, and we look up and say, how did we do that? And then here comes our consultants to come and say, well, let me tell you why you did that. Let me tell you what happened, and let me help you learn from it. And we've been learning a great deal. We've been growing, and we've been developing the capacity to create an organization that doesn't chew people up and spit them out. We're learning about seasons. We're learning about times when people should not be working and times when people should be working. We've been really good at knowing the seasons when we should not be working. We haven't been as good at recognizing the time when now for our souls to grow, we need to be making a contribution. We've been learning about helping people understand work that happens inside the church and work that happens outside the church. We've been learning about how spiritual formation happens in this new context. We understood how it happened in a season of rest. Now we understand how it happens in a season of activity. We're learning how to build teams that create that sense of trust and fairness and acceptance. And we're learning that it's actually fun when you do the right kind of work in the right kind of environment and it is worthy 
of our efforts and time. That's been a big part of what's been going on here in phase one. Now, in phase two, we're going to invite others. We are going, the day is coming when we will look for the people that God has assigned us and we'll invite them into our community. And there's a team of people right now who are at work on a plan that's going to help us do that and do it very well. While we're over here working in phase one, they're ahead now thinking through when we get there, how will we do that effectively? Michael Steerhoff has been doing two big jobs for us as a community lately, and this is one of them that he's been working on. Michael's been out of work for a while since SAS laid him off, and he's got uh, time. And bad for him, <laughs> really good for us. <laughs> pray, pray for Michael to get a job. But uh, um, he's been, what he did for SAS was he spent his time thinking through uh, marketing strategies. And interestingly, a lot of the principles of marketing apply to us when we think about inviting those that God has assigned to us. And so you'll be hearing more about this in the fall as we get into that phase. Step three will be a season of growth. You'll see that once we start inviting people, well, naturally, then people would come. And so then we would grow to that place where we hit around 300, which would approximately double the size that we have today. I don't know how long that season will last. I don't know how long it will take. But I can pretty much predict there's going to be growing pains involved in that. We'll have to go back and look at each one of these ministries and say, well, how do you do adult ministry and children's ministry? And how do you do youth ministry? And how do you develop systems now that there are more people than there were before in a way that doesn't chew people up and maintains our experience? And that thing that that Bobby talked about in the email, that we're able to have that and still be able to invite people into the community. So there will be a learning phase that happens for us when we are in this season of growth. And then when we get to the fourth time, the fourth step of this process, we will begin to develop a parenting or a support structure down here. Actually, I've been looking forward to that time as well and imagining what will happen when we get to that place. And I can see this parent structure having two um, functions. The first is to support NRCC and tend to the administrative parts of our life together. This, has, this becomes the place where we develop our systems, wherein res- reside our values. This becomes the place where we take care of operations. This becomes the place where we develop teams and where we develop uh, training for our team members, training for our team leaders, training for our musicians, training for the, the whole process that we would do. All of the organizational functions that help a community survive and thrive and maintain our values will serve to support this larger community here with this parent structure. That's the first function of this parent body. The second function of this parent body is to say once we have learned how to support one structure, why stop at one? Why not support others as well? And we began to think about a way that we could develop simple churches, churches that are functioning without the need for administrative overhead, without the need for budgets and planning and training. Believe me, if I had come here to plant NRCC and I had never had to think about the administrative stuff, this would have been a breeze. If it was just the people stuff and I didn't have to think about finding location, didn't think about where does the photocopying happen, didn't have to think about how we get the carpets vacuumed, it would have been a delight to just work on being a pure expression of spiritual community. And if we can, by doing this once for a church, do this for simple churches. Well, the future is probably going to not look like the past. Churches are probably not going to be filled with people sitting in rows anymore. They're going to be more like people sitting in coffee shops together or meeting in homes together or meeting in community centers someplace. Or church is going to look very different in the future. But with an administrative structure to support these simple churches, these pared down to the purest form of spiritual community, kinds of organisms, we can unburden them of budgets, unburden them of facility, unburden them of administration, unburden them of training, and these communities can become as pure an expression of our values and our experience as possible, and yet still have access to organizational support. And I love that idea. I can't wait for us to get down to phase four. I think that's going to be delightful when we get there because the idea of being able to support the church in its purest form uh, I, I think of the pictures that I have of what the New Testament might have been like. I, I just can't wait to get to that place and see people experiencing this reality. Now, while this 
parenting structure is being built, you'll notice that we cap out here at 400 on this campus. And that is because we've made a determination that it's not helpful or useful for there ever to be more than 120 people in the room at any given time. Because, so consequently, we will develop this property such that there are never, well, there's no more than 120 seats. You know, well, there'll probably be more because you can only fill up 80% of the seats. But there's never room for more than 120 people because at 120 people, you can have a sense of connectedness. You can have people being closely aligned with each other. You can do what are you thinking. And we can grow to be about 400 in a way between two services and the percentage that are kids and those kinds of different breakouts that we do that on this campus and in all future sub-congregations, whether these simple churches or house churches or community center churches, we'll keep them at a size where it is possible to experience those values and the, the sense of connectedness that has been part of the spiritual vitality that we have had. So, each of these uh, subcommittees has the potential of being supported, but it doesn't allow for being absorbed by the tremendous amount of energy and effort that goes into administration. <clears throat> the other thing it allows is it allows for numerical uh, mass. Um, to truly affect a community, there needs to be a certain numerical mass involved. To be truly transformative of the triangle, which is kind of what I have floating around in the back of my mind, in my heart, uh, something that I think God has whispered to my heart, that when I die, the tone, the mood the spiritual environment of the triangle will be different because of the community that I was a part of. That because we were part of NRCC, when we breathe our last, there will have been a profound change in the very fabric of Raleigh's society. There will be peoples whose hearts are awakened and whose city is revived. We pray that at the end of every service. Lord, Revive our hearts and awaken our city. Well, you can't do that with 120 people. You can do that with salt that is spread across the earth. And you can do that if we can support substructures that would allow us to experience this reality together and not have to be centered in one large room with everyone together. So, that's kind of the focus and the direction we're going in the next 20 years, I wouldn't be surprised if we get there and it changes. But that's kind of what we're shooting for now. <laughs> so now I want to tell you what we've been doing since October when you last heard about this. Next slide. In each one of these ministries, we've... Um, next slide. That's the one. <laughs> in each one of these... Uh, Ministries we've been working since October. We've been working on our groups. Several have formed and several are still ongoing. We've been working on our groups even before last October. We have about 10 breathing groups now. We are preparing for our fall book club. The Mail Traders group is still going on. The McGrath's and the Towners home group is still going on. Anne has started a Lectio Divina class on Thursday night. And if you're interested in a group, that's what that paper there is in front of you. If you think, I'd like to be in a group, just write the word group right there and somebody will contact you. Uh, I will uh, make sure that you're in a group. You heard uh, Bobby talk about our women's ministry uh, meeting quarterly. I have not been a very good team leader for them of late because I've been so absorbed in these other things, and I'll get together with them again and meet as a team, and we'll see what's unfolding. I want to talk to you a little bit about care team and newcomer team. You can see what they're there in italics. Care team is a ministry of connecting resource to need. We have a lot of people in our church who have resource, and we have people from time to time in our church who have need. What's lacking is a way of connecting that resource to that need. We have people who would be willing to receive help, and we have people who would be willing to give help. The problem has been the connection of the two. And so it's really an administrative ministry that connects those resources uh, to those needs, things like uh, I think of our single moms who oftentimes are overwhelmed by home repairs or who, uh, you know, just need someone to help from time to time with driving because they've got to be four places at once or people who hit financial difficulties and we need access to the benevolence fund or some such thing. Our newcomer team is what helps people come from being a visitor to 
considering that this is their community? And how do we help them get from one place to the other? And both of these ministries are non-existent. We are waiting for someone to rise as a person to lead that, to design it, and then to uh, maintain it over time. And so if you'd like to be part of such a team in the future, you write down newcomer or care team. If you'd like to initiate and start that, you write that down, and we'll contact you, and we'll talk about the process. But the one I want to talk about here, spiritual friends, is the one that I'm most excited about because I am happy it is in place. You'll have a flyer soon to know what the Spiritual Friends Ministry is. I'll explain it to you a little bit. It's basically this. It's a, people, it's a group of people that I've asked to pray for you, and they are doing that. And they're holding you before God, and they're holding your children before God. And I asked them to pray for you, and I said, when the Holy Spirit stirs up someone in your heart, ask after their well-being, and ask how you can pray more effectively. Well, right now as the team is forming They're looking at your names on a piece of paper, and they're saying, who in the heck is that? I don't know who that person is. (laughs) And so you may be getting an email in the next little bit asking uh, who you are. (laughs) Please don't be offended. I've sent them to find out who you are so they can be praying for you and to be holding you before God. The reason that I am excited about this is because this has been the singular ministry strategy of NRCC, and I have done it. And I have done it, and I know that it is something God attends. I have these people on a piece of paper. I name their names before God, and God does profound things. When we grew and when I got scattered, I knew I needed other people to do this with me. But I know this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit of God attends, and that is started now, and you will be hearing more about it. Next slide. The youth part of our church is where we've been doing a great deal of work. We've had problems in our youth ministry this last couple of years, and those problems have highlighted my own unfitness for the kind of management that was required in that setting. Aaliyah was very fruitful when she was overseeing our youth ministry. When we moved her to overseeing and training the people for youth and for nursery and for children's ministry and for Highway 56, it became very difficult because we did it right at a time when she lost all but one of her children's ministry team. They all went away. And so with limited resources and having very little to work with, she came at this and said, you know, I have to just make some choices. And so she chose to focus on the children's ministry at the expense of the youth ministry, which, given her heart for youth, caused her more than a few tears because as she watched our youth ministry begin to flounder, she just was uh, ripped up inside. But as such, our children's ministry is doing relatively well right now, but our youth ministry has suffered. Furthermore, I did a terrible job of manager in the, managing her during this time. And my, our consultants have pointed out to me that in many ways I unwittingly threw her to the wolves. <laughs> and the way that I did it was this. I am very abstract in the way that I think. And this time and this transition called for very concrete direction. So I would speak to her in these vague generalizations, thinking all is well now, only to have all not be well and keep being well. And so she became frustrated and she uh, was finding it very difficult to do well and succeed. So now... Our strategic planning team and one subcommittee of that group, uh, particularly Bob and Robin and Glenn and Michelle and Troy uh, and Mayumi, have been advocating on behalf of Aaliyah, making sure that she has what she needs to succeed in the youth ministry, that she has the team resources, that she has the financial resources, that she has clear enough direction as to what her time and focus and energy she needs to be on. And as we're doing that, there is bubbling up among us a sense of spiritual anticipation of what God has set before us as we have begun to pray concertedly about this, and as we've begun to do the things that need to be done for her to succeed. At one point, it looked like we might lose Aaliyah, and that would have been a tragedy because it would not have been Aaliyah's uh, uh, issue. It would have been our failure to support her and give her what she needs. So right now, that is coming online, and it is going very, very well. I am looking forward to what happens over this year. And if you would like to explore what it would mean to be part of the adult uh, leadership team or the mentoring team that you're going to hear about in the future, that would be great just to write the word youth down there. Next slide is children. 
As I said, the children's ministry received the lion's share and so consequently is running well. It's not even close to what Aaliyah wants it to be. And she says, there's so many things that I envision, so many things that I have in mind for it, but it has been running very well. It's, uh, um, there's need, of course, for uh, people to love our babies. And, uh, and then there are, within the children's ministry, the desire for them to have a few more specialists. Specialists are people who do skits and do puppets and do video and do music and those kinds of things. And then there is a need for counselors. And these are people who are less inclined to do the activity kinds of things of a specialist and more inclined to simply be present, to love children, to listen to them and listen to the Holy Spirit, to pray with them and to pray for them and to be among them developing relationships. So if you are interested in specialist or counselor, please do write that down. Our next slide is worship. And I wish I had more time to talk about this one. This is the second assignment that I've given Michael Steerhoff. <clears throat> we have, uh, <clears throat> well, let me start this way. The typical model of contemporary worship is for a person to stand in the front and to lead worship. And that person senses from the Holy Spirit of God the direction that we are to go and draws from the tools of a list of songs that are available and the tools of a group of musicians who are available and helps the congregation come and bring their offering in present and into the presence of God. And that's a very good model and it has worked very, very well in very many places and I think most of us have experienced that working very well. As we are being authentic to who we are, there is this sense in which we get close to that, and it's never quite been what I would desire it to be for us as a community. And I was thinking about this the other day with Denise, and I was saying, you know, when we do, what are you thinking at the end of our service? There is a spiritual vitality that attends that. And that same spiritual vitality doesn't attend the beginning of our service when we come to bring an offering of worship to our God. And so what is it that's going on? And I thought, oh, what it is is there is this thing that God has assigned us to be people of community. And we powerfully engage in that when we do what are you thinking, but we allow a person up in the front to tell us what to pray, what to think, what to do, and that just seems to be cross-grain. And yet that's the model that we've all experienced with such vitality. That's the way that we have worshipped God together. So I told Michael to start off on a project, and I said the project is go find out an indigenous form of worship for NRCC, <laughs> one that is authentic to us, the way God made us to be. And so some of you have been invited into uh, some of these brainstorming times that he's having right now of thinking through, going back to the base definition of what is worship, going back to the base definition of how we might do it. And so over these next months, I expect you will be hearing more about that. It is one of the things that we uh, are working on right now. Okay, next slide. Once again, Bob Love, stand up. Once again, give him an applause, thunderous applause. Okay. I'm sorry, that was lame. I said thunderous. Come on, do it again. <laughs> because Bob is helping us get organized without chewing people up and spitting them out. And he's become the director of operations, and we've seen a lot of progress in all of these teams. He's been working on getting our financial systems in order, our technology systems, and our food systems in order. But I want to highlight just two. I want to highlight the communication team and the facility team. Tricia Camp has just agreed to be the team leader over communications, which means that she is going to make our communications process work. And you might have gotten a call from her recently. You might have gotten an email from her recently, and you're going to do that more and more often. She'll be making sure that our print literature and our emails and our announcements and our web postings happen in a way that's going to give us the best possible chance of all knowing what is going on. Now, if you would like to help her, she could use some help. You know, from time to time, we're actually going to make phone calls. From time to time, we're going to put things in envelopes and put them in the mail. Can you imagine that? And we're going to send out email announcements. And if you'd like to help her stuff envelopes, or if you can call maybe 10 people on the list and help her do that, you just write the word communication right there, and she will call you from time to time. The second one is the facility team. 
Jim Daly and Mike Carter have been working together on this, and it is just going swimmingly. I am just as pleased as pleased can be. They're kind of starting in the back, and they're working their way this way and then outside. And so we're uh, coming close to the finishing of the the children's room. As a matter of fact, uh, Daly called me today and said, uh, I don't care what you're doing this afternoon. You're not doing any more. You're coming with me, and you're going to paint the ceiling to that children's room. (laughs) So I brought along my paint clothes, and he and I are going to go to lunch. And Mike, if you want to come, if you're free, come on, we're going to paint the ceiling. And uh, so we've got our Thursday night group that's going on that. I volunteered to be part of it. And so it's the children's room that's going. Then we're going to work on the youth suite together. Then we're going to finish the communication center and the lobby. Then we're going to go down to the street and make sure that the front looks good. And uh, eventually we'll come to the the sanctuary. And that'll probably happen in conjunction with Michael as we figure out how we're going to do worship. We'll probably change the configuration of the sanctuary some way. So that's working well. And I just want you, when you see them, all of them, to affirm them, pat them on the back and say, well done. Next slide. So, where we've been for the last six months. We're making significant progress in the adult ministry. We are doing a great deal of foundational rebuilding in the youth ministry, and uh, the children's ministry has now hit a place where it is safe for a while. We're looking at a new beginning for our worship ministry, and we've made significant progress in our systems. At our prayer meeting in April, uh, at each one of the gatherings there were several people who independently had a sense of God words to speak. And it was that the people would own the church. More and more, we are seeing happen among us a shift away from the feeling that the church is somehow them. And the them could be Doug, the pastor man, or it could be the professionals, or it could be the really devout people, or it could be the really committed people. More and more, we're seeing a shift away from that and a shift toward that this is my community. These are my people. This is my organism. And so at our prayer gathering, we begin to pray along those lines, sensing that God was nudging us in that direction. This church is us. This church belongs to you. We're looking to be the community of people who own the farm. It's our church. Jesus gave it to us. Now, Constantine in the third century tried to take it away, but we're taking it back. The church belongs to the people, not to the professionals. You are the ones who make it what it is. And this is happening without any concerted effort to make it happen, which makes me think this is the season. You know, you've heard me say those words a lot, But now the Holy Spirit of God is doing that among us. And I'm praying for you to be in that. I'm praying for you to be part of that, to find some corner of this church where you own it and your contribution makes a difference and what you receive and what you give puts your fingerprints all over that area. Shannon was praying at the prayer gathering that we had Lord, help us all to understand this is our community. And after her prayer, the, 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 the group kind of resonated with that and said, you know, we really do need each other. Now, we'd all heard sermons about being the body of Christ, you know, that one is a, one is a foot and one is an eye and one is each one of these parts, and so we're all interdependent. We've all heard this before. But there was something resonating that the Holy Spirit of God is now taking that, which is a message we've all heard until it's just so much like the background that we never hear anymore, and bringing it to the fore and saying, this is now your experience in this community at this time. So, I've been praying that for you. And I've come to this deep conviction that without you, this body will go without in some critical area. Just like if we were all of a sudden without a pancreas or without some significant and essential organ. So I invite you to ask the Holy Spirit of God to help you find a place where God would have you contribute. At the end of today, if you will do one thing, Mark Vallon spoke up in the first service and he said, well, what I hear, Doug, is that I need to listen and obey. If you will listen to the Holy Spirit and obey the promptings of God, we will have succeeded in this community meeting. Robin was talking to me the other day about how much fun it is to work with people. She talked about working together in such glowing terms, doing a task together, a job together, serving the community together. She said, this is fun. 
Well, that's definitely been my experience working with Mike and with Jim, that when I volunteered for the facility team, I've had a lot of fun. It has been a great time working with these guys and getting to know these guys. We used to be an unorganized, not doing any work, therefore not working together church. And a culture developed around that, and it was a good culture for a time. But now it's time for a culture shift. We need to discover the benefits that also accrue to those when we do work together on a significant mission that is bigger than ourselves, and we work toward a common objective together. God has set before us a mission to create a community for the people that God has assigned us. Fortunately, we're going to like those people because they'll be on a journey that's not unlike our own. Only they haven't found a community yet to be part of. Many have actually been pushed away from community as their faith and as their values development went on in a very healthy and normal way. They were pushed away from a community of faith, and we can do something about that. We have the raw materials here among us to be able to create an environment for people to find and to follow Jesus. And finally, I've been seeing this coming for a while now. I kind of knew it a couple of years ago, and as such, I have been preparing us for this future. I know the people that God has assigned us. I've talked with them, have coffee with them from time to time, and I know their questions, and I know their frustrations, and I know the vocabulary that they speak, and I know what it is that is a spiritual hunger in their hearts. They're not unlike a lot of you. And so as a way of preparing us for them, I've started to talk about certain themes here as a church. One of the first is I talked about meditation. I talked about the rich heritage that is available to us as Christians around the contemplative practices. I taught about the history. I taught about how it's done. And I did so for two reasons. First, for the health of our own souls. I hope you got that email I sent out about the ubi, ubi, ubi cat, caritas, whatever it is. I didn't know the Latin part. Where there is grace, where there is love, there is God. And to use that in that hesiastic form of prayer, using that contemplative practice, it is freedom for our souls. But I also did it to prepare us for the people that God has assigned us. Because when we hit these stages of development in our spiritual journey, meditation becomes very meaningful to us, more so than it was in previous times. Surprisingly to me, when I started talking about that message, it became quite controversial in our little community, and two families left feeling that we were straying from the faith, straying too close to Eastern religions. Also, to prepare us for this transition, I've begun to talk to us about the ineffability of God. That's the systematic theology term, that God is beyond us. And consequently, the images that we use to describe God are only images. And many images with which Christians have become very comfortable are not helpful when we speak to people at these other stages of the spiritual journey, particularly the patriarchal, the masculine, the hierarchical, the power images of God, these things actually get in the way of people experiencing God. And so I said that we can use nurturing images of God and we can use feminine images of God, and they are certainly present in Scripture and they can certainly be present in our vocabulary, and we could use them. Now, I have to confess to you my own difficulty. I have a really hard time referring to God as she. I've thought several times I should do that just because it's true. But I just can't make myself do it. And it's, I have no reason why I can't. I mean, it is right. I should. I just can't do it. And I, I should probably do that. <laughs> but in the process of talking about that and even mentioning that that was a possibility, I made another family very uncomfortable, and they left. And the same happened as we began to talk about it being healthy to question our traditional interpretations of theology and orthodoxy. I said that it is good for us to wonder if we have the best understanding of salvation, the best understanding of original sin, the best understanding of the Spirit of God within us, the best understanding of heaven and hell and the afterlife. And again, some in response to that have had to leave. 
By the time I sent you that email about a lesbian couple wanting to be part of our community, most of the folks had already left, and there was only one person that left after that. (laughs) Now, every one of them have left on very good terms. We've had a very inclusive community, and so we had very frank but affirming conversations. And I completely understand how frightening it is for such fundamental changes to be going on in preparation for this mission that is before us. I think when Brenda left, that was the hardest for me. It made me very sad because I I love her a great deal. And I'm having lunch with her this week, and I'm thinking I may still just keep trying to help her see the light. (laughs) But these people who have left, they are good people. And I've gotten a little bit discouraged several times as I am knowingly chasing away good people. Eyes wide open to what's going to happen. I know the language. You, you've heard me. I use the term universal mind instead of the mind of Christ. I do that on purpose, and I know that that just freaks some people out. You know, I talk about being in sync with the rhythm of the universe instead of saying obeying God and doing the things. I, I do these things on purpose, and I know as I'm writing them on a piece of paper that I'm just going to push somebody's buttons. But I also know that God has set before us a mission. I had two friends write me. I'm going to read to you what they said. One of our spiritual friends who prays for you also prays for me. She sent me this email. Doug, I was praying about this whole people leaving the church thing, and I immediately had a picture of Gideon's army drinking at the water, some lapping, some cupping with their hands. And with that one thing, God cut the army by a large percentage. It may seem quite costly to lose people for just a few visits by a gay couple who may never return, but God evidently was carving our numbers with this situation. I bet Gideon's heart sank just a bit, not just because of losing the numbers, but I bet he saw some really good fighting men go home with that group. Another friend I was meeting with for lunch one of these days, and I told him I was feeling discouraged. Asked, I asked him to pray, and he wrote me this note. He said, Doug, I've been praying for you about what we discussed at our lunch on Wednesday. I believe God gave me some words of encouragement for you. The church has lost a number of good families and cherished friends over the last months due to the changes underfoot. I think God is orchestrating a change in strategy. Just like when you're playing chess, and you see, by the way, this guy's really smart. I bet he plays chess, and I bet he knows everything he's going to explain. I, I, I didn't really understand it. <laughs> I think God is changing a strategy just like when you're playing chess, and you see that the strategy you are employing isn't working. You sometimes have to completely move all the pieces on the board around to switch to a different strategy. Some pieces that we're protecting now have to go on offense, and some pieces will be captured in the process, but the pieces that weren't playing much of a role in the original strategy are now leading the offensive. The overall result is that the new strategy will be more effective than the old. God is going to bring some new members forward who have been playing a background or defensive role so far, and some new key people are going to join from the outside. I know that you're starting to see some of this already. It just seems a little chaotic during this transition from one strategy to another. And these were both very encouraging to me personally because as I read them, the Holy Spirit leapt within me. I believed that I was hearing the mind of Christ, the mind of God, the heart of the universe. The people who leave have been good people. They've been mature and they've been gifted. Several of them I've counted as friends. Several worked in dimensions of our church where their loss was deeply felt and it was disheartening to see them go. But through the fog of my own personal discouragement, the Lord keeps bringing back to my heart the assignment that he has before us. There are people in our city that he has assigned us. Without finding them, they may not find a spiritual place. On a practical note, those who have left were longtime Christians who, being taught not only the things that had matured them spiritually, had also been taught the way of generosity. They had learned to give sacrificially of their finances. Every one of them practiced the principle of the tithe, of giving a tenth of their income. And as such, as these families have left, these six or seven families have left over the last six months, we've had about a 17% decrease in our income. And this has come at a time when preparing for our future is engendering a need for an increase in our income rather than a decrease. We had a buffer but that buffer is now gone. We have money in the benevolence fund and we have money in the growth fund, but that money can't be used right now because it's covering a shortfall in the general fund. For the first time that I can think of, we have debt besides our mortgage. 
we have about $4,000 on a line of credit that was used for the facility improvements that we've done recently. Now, we are a frugal church. I just feel uh, an imperative to not waste the money that people give to God. When people are making an offering to their God, if we waste that money, that is a violation of the greatest order. We also cannot go into debt. So our first priority must be to pay that off. But now is a time when we need to be spending. Now is a time when we need to finish up our facility and fund the team that is working through it so that our facility says to people, we were waiting for you, we are glad you're here, as opposed to we don't care that much. Each one of the emerging ministries that I outlined for you needs dollars to be effective. We're not talking about a lot of dollars, but the absence of those dollars causes them to come to a standstill. In the past, you have asked me to tell you when we have a need. Now, we have a need. We have an immediate need, and we have an ongoing need. There was a time when a large percentage of our community were givers. Now that number is below 50%, 47%. As you know, I believe in the tithe. I don't believe it's a law. I don't believe it's a mandate. I don't believe it's an obligation, but I believe it's a principle of spiritual practice. It's just like listen and obey. It's a spiritual strategy that we employ. And when we do, it has profound effect on our lives. It frees us from the fear of not having enough. It frees us from the pressure of being our own source. It helps us to see and to experience God as our source. It puts us in sync with the flow of the universe. It promotes generosity. It challenges fear and stinginess. It changes us. It's a strategy of soul development that at the same time is a way that we fund the community of faith, which makes it perfect in its simplicity. It's good for the individual, and it's good for the community. So whenever I teach on the spiritual aspects of money, I teach on the tithe. And Jesus had a lot to say about money. He had more to say about that even than love. It is profoundly linked to the spiritual depths of our lives. Money is linked to our identities, It's linked to our security. It's linked to our deepest fears. And for millennia, people of faith have discovered that their souls prosper when they are freed from this demon that surrounds money in their hearts. And I want that for you. Not a law that we have to abide, but a spiritual tradition that has profound power to free However, today I'm not teaching about the spiritual aspects of money. I'm talking about the other side of the equation, the spiritual benefits that accrue to us when you give to the community. I'm talking about that other side of this perfect practice, that when we give to the community, the community is blessed. I believe in the vision that God has set before us. I believe that there will be great blessing to us and to our city but it will cost dollars, so I'm asking you to give. I'm asking you to give sacrificially. I'm asking you to give something that costs you something. I'm asking you to give in such a way that when you look at it, it's not just something that comes out of your overflow, but you say, I am giving this to the church instead of that. Now, there's a great deal to say about sacrifice, and if I was teaching on money, I would talk to you in depth about the principle that underlies what I've just asked you to do, but I don't have time for that. Something that costs you something, something you will notice when it goes, there is a great deal to be said about bringing a sacrifice to God. I'm asking you to give sacrificially. I'm also asking you to give nobly, because there is something of great import before us something with the promise of profoundly changing the climate in our city, something of advancing the kingdom of God in our generation, something worth sacrificing for. When we come to the end of our days and we look back and we measure our actions and we see the blessing that accrues to us as we imagine what would happen in our city as we go through these phases, the sacrificial financial support of this endeavor could well be among our most meaningful contributions. The people that God has assigned us, this is something worth giving toward. If we were to move from our current 47% of our people who practice the tithe, this would mean that eight more families take up the practice. 
And that's on a very conservative basis of people making $4,000 a month and tithing 400 Many earn more than that. If eight more families would tithe, our current needs would be met. If 12 more families would practice the tithe, all the work on our facility, all the funding for our ministries would all be unencumbered by financial deficit. If some would come and give one-time gifts toward our growth fund, we could fund all of the plans that the strategic planning team is now generating. Simple things like getting a greeting desk for our children because of the security and the communication that it says to parents when they come in and they feel safe and secure when someone is being checked in at that desk. A projector for our youth to be able to use video and PowerPoint and the, the more technologically related and contemporary aspects of ministry. Simple things like creating a lobby that would be more conducive to fellowship so that we can use the time that we have together more effectively. I'm asking you to give toward these kinds of projects as well. So, I am asking you to give. And unlike times in the past, when I didn't want to waste too much time on money, now I don't feel like it's wasting time at all. People often think I'm reluctant to talk about money. I am not reluctant to talk about money at all. I just don't want to waste the time talking about money. It seems like every time we're talking about money, we're not talking about something else. But now, we're not wasting our time because there is a vision before us, and it will not go forward without dollars, so I will continue to ask until we have what we need. So, let us review. We're in a time of culture shift at NRCC. We're preparing for some people that God has assigned us. There are people who are a lot like the stayers at NRCC. In order to prepare for them, we'll need people to own our community, people who feel like this is mine, this is my place, and to make a contribution to the strength of our community together. That paper right in front of you would give you options. Also, to prepare for this, we will need dollars, and I'm asking you to give faithfully, sacrificially, and nobly. Once to a growth fund, ongoingly in the spiritual practice of the tithe. Now, next week, we will return to the spiritual formation part of our community life. We will talk again about those emotional parts of us that tend to atrophy when we don't cultivate them. We'll finish up last week's message, but today I wanted you to understand where we've been and where we're going. Let's pray. Lord, I hold before you our community, and I ask for these that you love to hear your Spirit, that they would know exactly what it is to which you would call them. They would know exactly what it is that is the part that you have set before them, that they would not be moved by a need, but would be moved by the voice. Let me pause that and say, I believe what I said to you today. And I have purposely kept what I've said about as bland as it can be. I tried really hard not to be emotionally evocative, not to be emotionally inflammatory, because I want you to hear the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to hear Doug. I have a certain prowess with words that I know how to use, and I don't want to do that because of all the things that I want that I know that will be sustainable. It's that we listen carefully for the Spirit of God. So if there's one thing I would ask of you, ask God what you should give. Ask God where you should contribute. And if the Holy Spirit nudges you to give 2% and not give 10%, you give 2%. If the Holy Spirit nudges you to sit and rest and not contribute right now, you do that. Listen and obey, listen and obey. But I would encourage you to try your best to discern the inner voice of God, not the inner voice of fear. Because the former will allow you to have peace in some of the most frightening demands that God would make upon your soul. The latter, fear, offers you this false sense of relief when you step back away from the thing that God would have for you and you just feel, oh, so relieved that I don't have to press forward in that. Listen for the voice of God. Ask Him. So, Holy Spirit of God, I pray for your people. I hold them before you. I hold them before you and their capacity to discern your inner voice. Lord, that we would be a community that hears and we obey. In Jesus' name, amen.
And as the offer